Oh, today I'm preaching through Zechariah. Let me, let me just remind you of a couple of things. Um, the reason that I'm doing this series is I'm really hoping to uh, <clears throat> excite you about every book of the Bible. Hopefully at the end of these messages, um, you will say, hey, I'd like to read that book. You may not have time immediately to do it, but at least you'll, you'll see what's in a book. And some of these books that are small and maybe you've skipped over, you might you know, you, you would say, okay, now I really want to read that book. The other thing I want to do is give you tools for every book of the Bible so that when you do read that book, where you do spend some time in that book, you have a setting and you have some context to really understand uh, what is going on in the book. Now, I'm going to tell you this. The book of Zechariah is a challenge. And um, I'm going to, I have so much more to say than I can say in this period of time. And I've, I've really trying to cho- I've chosen what I'm going to do here to try to make this as efficient and effective as it can. Um, I, I got spoiled a little bit through some of these little, little books that just have two or three chapters. Now we're going back to 14 chapters, so it's a, a little bit longer of a spread. Um, but I, I do want to introduce you to this book, and it's unique. It's a very unique book. In fact, I'm going to start off with a question. Why is this book so weird? Zechariah, if anybody's read it, my wife has been reading it this week, and she keeps just going, I don't know what you're going to say on Sunday. It's a bizarre book. There are women flying around in baskets. There are angels with storks who take those baskets to other countries. There are four chariots in a bush, but only one guy's talking. There's a lampstand that has a crown, and then there's two crowns that are put on from one guy's head to another guy's head, then they hang it in the temple. Um, In the midst of all of that, there are lots of quotes that are quoted in the New Testament. Other than Isaiah, Zechariah is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Jesus loved it. He quoted it a number of times. It is a weird book. A lot of people struggle with it and dismiss it as completely fanciful or just completely symbolic and we could never understand it. Um, It's a weird book. It's got weird things in it. I'm going to show you the weird things. It also raises another question. Why is the future so important for us to have a handle on? Why is it so important for us to understand some things that are happening in the future? Not in detail in a way that we can predict, but, but to give us a hope, to give us something to hang on to, which should motivate us to be steadfast here in the present. Um, and I, I do think that the future is important. And this book focuses really on the future. For, for the original readers, it focused on their immediate future and the future of Christ's first coming and his second coming. For us, just his second coming remains in the future. But then there's another question is, what is my role in future events? Um, as all this is unfolding and God is going to be faithful, I would go back to this statement. God will fulfill all of his promises. Our participation and joy in being a part of that is dependent on our faithfulness. God will fulfill everything he promised to do. Our participation and joy in being a part of that is dependent on our faithfulness to do what God has asked us to do. And so with that, I'm going to move into the book of Zechariah, which is unique in its perspective. God really needs to get our attention. He tells the story in a bunch of different ways. In the Old Testament, we've seen the narrative storyline. We went through um, the 17 historical books and we saw the narrative storyline. Then we went through more of the kind of the heartfelt poetic section 
where you deal with suffering in Job. You deal with uh, praising God during the good times and the bad times in the book of Psalms. We went through wisdom for daily living, uh, put in, in very uh, catchy phrases in the book of Proverbs. We, we went through kind of this quest for meaning in Ecclesiastes and finally um, real human love in Song of Solomon. It, kind of the heart issues that we struggle with. Um, then we saw, and we are in the middle of, these message of the prophets. So, so God has told a story, he's written some poems, he's given us sermons, and then we get to Zechariah, which I'm going to call the zombie apocalypse. It is a bizarre book. Um, it really is called apocalyptic literature. It is, it is literature that is, is presenting this cosmic battle between good and evil, in fanciful, crazy terms that are related to contemporary issues, but presented to communicate a very clear message that in the midst of um, the cosmic battle between good and evil, God's forces will win, but we should remain faithful. And all of that is presented in these bizarre images. Um, there are, there are winged creatures, there are visions in the night, there's, there's all kinds of things going on. And before you think, okay, the Bible's just weird, let me tell you, there's a lot of modern apocalyptic stuff, and you like it, by the way. See if I can catch some generations here. Apocalyptic is Star Wars. Conflict between good and evil, weird creatures, fanciful scenes, some humans involved, and be part of the good side and be faithful there, okay? Well, Lord of the Rings, another fanciful conflict between good and evil, epic weird creatures, but some humans involved. Faithfulness is really important. And if you're really a Tolkien fan, you understand Tolkien's talking in, in Lord of the Rings about a lot of modern issues as he talks through those things. Harry Potter, conflict between good and evil, weird creatures, um, good versus evil, and, and people who, who have to bond together and work together to accomplish something. And in this one, and in so many of them, there's also sacrificial love, sacrifices that take place. I'm going to keep going here. Um, Transformers. Um, maybe that's your deal. Um, weird creatures from other planets that are coming here, a battle, cosmic battle between good and evil. And in the middle of all of that, Humans get involved in the, in the little pieces, and the humans have to be faithful to do what they're doing, okay? Um, <laughs> there's another, the Avengers, the whole Avengers series, you take them all. It's conflict between good and evil, cosmic battle, weird creatures, humans involved, lots of storylines that are all mixed together, um, illusions back and forth. Um, and, and then I, I had to work hard to find a, a, a picture, there's... There's so many zombie things, and, and I couldn't put any very many um, zombie pictures up there. They're just gross. Um, so World War Z, at least you get Brad Pitt, okay? A zombie movie, okay? A zombie movie, conflict between good and evil. The world is out of control. There's conflict. Nobody's working together. And then somebody has to figure out how to save the world. Interestingly, the Lord was gracious, and this past week I watched um, Infinity Wars. Um, and as I watched Infinity Wars... I came up with 22, and since then I've added two more, parallels between Infinity Wars and the book of Zechariah. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. 
All of these things, the scenes bouncing back and forth. Okay, here's a picture of this. Here's a picture of this. Human stuff, allusions to things you need to know in the past. I loved it. When, um, in Infinity Wars, if you're familiar with the Avengers thing, um, all of the different um, Marvel comics are all coming together. And, and as they, they, they blend together, there's confusions. And, and, and at one point, they mention um, the superheroes from, from Earth. And, and one of the creatures... Um, one, of the, one of the aliens says, oh, you mean like Kevin Bacon? Well, okay, that's just, that's a little reference to something. You've got to know a lot to know what they're referring to. Zechariah is that way too. There are little references that you would look at it and go, oh, you mean like in Leviticus? Oh, you mean like back in Genesis chapter one? Um, it, is, it is this blend of stuff and we do it all the time. So this is, this is God getting our attention. I told you the story. I gave you some poems. Here's all of these messages. Let me see if I can get your attention with a zombie apocalypse, a bizarro movie that captures your attention. And for some people, this is going to capture them and draw them in. Uh, let me highlight uh, that there are four very direct allusions or quotations of Zechariah in the New Testament. So it's not a bizarre book that can't be understood. Jesus looked at this book and Jesus kept saying throughout his life, this is fulfillment of Zechariah. This is fulfillment of Zechariah. To understand Apocalypse, I've got some handouts out at the Connection Center, three of them on apocalyptic literature. Um, a couple of them a little more simple. One of them uh, is, is much more technical, uh, the one by Andreas Kostenberger. His is a little more technical. But if you want to understand what's going on in apocalyptic literature, I've got some handouts for you there. I've got some background handouts. Um, and then one that, that gives not only the direct quotations of Zechariah in the New Testament, but a whole two-page article on the use of Zechariah in the New Testament and all of the allusions that come from that, and a lot of that is found in the book of Revelation. In fact, I'm going to tell you again and again, if you are thinking you want to understand the book of Revelation, you cannot do it without understanding Daniel and Zechariah, and especially Zechariah. Daniel tells the history of God's plan till the end of the age, focusing on the Gentiles. Zechariah does the same thing, the history of God's plan till the end of the age, focusing on the nation of Israel. All of that comes together in the book of Revelation. Don't start Revelation until you've done a good study of Daniel and Zechariah. Zechariah, again, he's a post-exilic prophet. We've talked about that again and again. Let me kind of run you into this, and then we're going to run through this book really quickly and see some of the bizarre things, but some of the really clear things. Um, Eugene Merrill says this, Whereas Haggai's vision that we looked at last week encompassed for the most part his immediate temporal situation, the range of his contemporary and colleague, Zechariah, was much more expansive. For Zechariah not only shared Haggai's burden about the inertia of the post-exilic community to finish the rebuilding of the temple, but by vision and dream saw the unfolding of divine purpose for all God's people for all ages to come. Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. They're preaching at the same time with Ezra to, and Zerubbabel to help rebuild the temple. Both of them are preaching during that time, motivating them to rebuild the temple. Haggai's short little message focuses on more the contemporary issues going on. The rebuilding of the temple in Zechariah is much more a part of God's glorious plan. 
So it's, it's much more expansive. He goes on to say, rich in apocalyptic imagery and packed with messianic prediction and illusion, Zechariah's writings became a favorite of the New Testament evangelists and apostles. The glorious hope expounded by the prophet was viewed by them as being fulfilled in the saving work and witness of Jesus Christ. No minor prophet excels Zechariah in the clarity and triumph by which he looks to the culmination of God's program and redemption. Other than Isaiah, nobody looks back like, to the prophets um, more than they look back to Zechariah. Um, he, is the, he is the one who really points towards Jesus in the clearest way. God is being faithful and ultimately God's plan unfolds and is fulfilled in Jesus. Zechariah makes it more clear than anybody else what's going on here. But he does this not in a narrative, not in a poem, not in a sermon, he does it through visions and apocalyptic imagery. Now, every now and then he'll drop out and, and give a sermon. He starts off with a clear uh, call to faithfulness at the very beginning. But for the most part, there's a lot of imagery in this book that fulfills it. Danny Hay says this, A literary style, apocalyptic, is a literary style closely connected to the Old Testament prophetic literature. It's called apocalyptic. While Old Testament prophecy typically uses colorful figures of speech and vivid imagery, apocalyptic uses highly symbolic, sometimes bizarre imagery, at least from our perspective, that goes beyond the normal figurative language of the prophets. For example, normal Old Testament prophecy compares God to a dangerous lion. That analogy is fairly easy to comprehend, for, whereas, uh, for we are familiar with lions. Daniel, however, has a vision of a leopard with four heads and four wings, a creature we're not familiar with. Everything in that vision is highly symbolic. For Daniel that we've looked at, the four heads probably represent four generals who split up Alexander the Great's empire. It's not that it's impossible to understand. You just have to understand his, some history, some background, and you have to understand that these are real, meaningful messages, but they're put in these big, huge, um, captivating scenes that are supposed to grab your attention and wrestle you away from the focus you usually have on the world. Other typical characteristics of apocalyptic literature include usually an angel giving an explanation of the vision. Um, basically, in the Old Testament, for the most part, unbelievers have dreams, and then it requires a believer to help interpret the dream. Believers have visions that they either understand or they need an angel to help them, under, help them interpret it. The vision is often related to the unfolding of world history, these cosmic events, and the ultimate victory of God over his enemies in the future is stressed, the final deliverance of God's people. It leads to God's deliverance. And one of the things that happens in Zechariah is God's, God's delivering us through Jesus Christ from the penalty of our sin in his first coming, redemption, and the presence of sin in his second coming when he comes to rule and defeat all enemies. The apocalyptic style occurs in the Old Testament books of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, as well as the New Testament book of Revelation. The style is also used in several non-canonical ancient Jewish religious books. It was common in their day, but it was a choice. It's common in our day. Don't think it's so weird. It's common in our day, and it's designed to get, you, get your attention to say, big things are happening, pay attention to what is happening. So let's run into this book and see what's going on as we look at who when, where, and why. Who composed Zechariah? Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet who delivered his messages to the Israelites who had returned to Jerusalem and Judah after the Babylonian exile. That makes them post-exilic. His grandfather is a man named Iddo, a priest who returned to the land of Zer uh, with Zerubbabel. 
This means that like Ezekiel, Zechariah was probably a priest. His name means the Lord remembers, a name that fits very well with the message of the book. God remembers his covenant, but also, you need to understand this. The, the, when God remembers, he always remembers and acts. Um, he, he, he will remember his people, not because he forgot about them. Oh my gosh, I left Noah on a boat. Oh my gosh, I forgot about my people in Israel. No, he's going to remember and act, which is why when we have communion and we're supposed to remember the Lord in this way, it's remember and act appropriately given what he has done. This, this word remember is, is significant and, and, and Zechariah is showing God's gonna remember to fulfill all of his covenant. When did this take place? Zechariah connects his ministry to the reign of Darius, the, pro, the powerful king of Persia. These dates place Zechariah's ministry, we know, between 520 and 518. Haggai's ministry was all in 520, during just a few months in 520. Zechariah's ministry overlaps with that and goes a little bit longer. So Zechariah and Haggai, Haggai in a more focused way, more contemporary, kind of straightforward. Zechariah in these visions is presenting the same message. God is glorious and you should be faithful to him in his glorious project. Let me set this up again. We've seen that there's this storyline that moves through the Old Testament First and Second Chronicles retells that storyline, and then Ezra and Nehemiah are going to finish it out. Zoom in on that. Basically what happens is they are in captivity for 70 years. Ezra and Nehemiah are going to talk about this return and the restoration. During that time is when the post-exilic prophets are going to pro prophesy. Pre-exilic, before they go to Babylon, Ezekiel and Daniel, while they're in Babylon, And then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, when they come back, Haggai and Zechariah write together. Malachi is going to be 100 years later. Um, he's going to come back at the end and say, you've forgotten. You're just now going through the rituals after all of this faithfulness that God has had. So Zechariah, a priest, writing apocalyptic literature to remind the people of the glory of the Lord, which should motivate them to finish the temple and have hope that God will fulfill all of his promises. When was Zechariah written? Zechariah's frequent mention of Persian King Darius is a reminder that the post-exilic situation is not the glorious restoration that was promised by Isaiah. There are a lot of people who would say, well, they came back from, and, and that's how God restored them. That is not what's going on in this book because they're already back and Zechariah is saying more restoration is to come. Jeremiah and the rest of the pre-exilic prophets made these great predictions. That wonderful time of restoration will be characterized by a powerful Davidic king ruling over Israel in a time of perpetual peace. They came back, there isn't a Davidic king, and he certainly is not ruling in perpetual peace. Um, all the other nations will be participating in this. That's All the other nations are still opposing them. So in Zechariah's time, all of these prophecies have not been fulfilled. Zechariah is looking to a future fulfillment. And like I've said so many times, there are these skips that go through time when God will regather his people. He did it after the Babylonian captivity. Um, he did it a couple of other times. He has done it now and he may do it again. They, the, the city of Jerusalem has been burned 36 times. Okay, 36 times the city of Jerusalem has been burned. It may get burned again. Um, and then God would have to maybe rebuild it and regather his people. I don't know how many times this rock is going to skip. But I do know that Zechariah is pointing to something that was in their future and seems to be in our future as well. 
Who's the audience? Zechariah has an immediate audience as well as a future and even a universal audience. His immediate audience is the community after the exile that needed to be inspired to finish the rebuilding of the temple. God's glory is so great, finish this project that God has given you. The larger audience is God's people of all time who should be looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises in the person of Jesus Christ, his redemption, his restoration, and his rule. He's already accomplished the redemption. He's restoring things and using us to be a a light in the world, empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit in every one of us, to get that message to the nations until he's going to come back, fulfill everything in Zechariah, and he's going to return. So why was Zechariah written? Zechariah provides a dramatic view of the future, focusing on the history of Israel. Daniel focuses on the Gentiles culminating in the coming of Messiah, who will, both, who will be both rejected when he comes in humility to redeem and accepted when he comes in power to rule. Zechariah makes those very clear. He's going to come, and in his humility, they'll reject him. He's going to come back in power, and he'll be received. The glo- this glorious revelation of the future should motivate the people of God to finish their task, whether it's building a temple or evangelizing the world. Again, God's never told us to build a building. But he has told us to make disciples of all the nations. And that's the task that we have. And yes, Operation Christmas Child is a part of that, but that's not the point here today. The point here today is God's given us a task to be a light in the world, in the family that you live in, in the, in the community that you live in, in your neighborhood, in your job, in all of the relationships that you have. And yes, around the world. And he's so glorious And the prediction of the future and his victory should motivate us to say, yes, he's going to bring this all about. I want to be a part of that. Now, specifically, remember, they are supposed to be building this temple. This is Solomon's temple. Just giving you some perspective. This is Solomon's temple. Um, It compares to the tabernacle in that it's about three times bigger than the tabernacle. That mobile tent where God's presence was that eventually moved to the temple In Ezekiel, we find that God's presence leaves the temple because idolatry was rampant. Now they have been in exile. They come back and they build this much smaller thing and and they're all kind of disappointed in it. And so when they started it and they laid the foundation, it looks like they looked at the foundation and said, this isn't going to be anything. And they kind of stopped and went to work on their own houses. Haggai and Zechariah tell them, you need to finish it even though it's not going to be everything you expect it to be. Now it gets remodeled by Herod the Great and becomes really big. But their initial immediate thing is because of God's unfolding plan. And for them, it involved in ways they could not comprehend and put together a first coming and a second coming. A coming to humbly redeem and then powerfully rule. They couldn't distinguish all of that um, in, in fact, the Jews who studied this really well, they, ha- they ended up with two messiahs. They said, I can't, we can't put this together. There's got to be two different people because one's going to come humbly. He's going to redeem and he's going to die. There must be another messiah, a second messiah. Now, we know from our perspective looking back, it's one messiah who dies and is resurrected and then comes back in a second coming. But their motivation was this glorious plan to finish their task. I want to tell you as we are getting ready to jump into this book, God has a glorious plan. Let's finish our task. So as we move into how this all works, um, the the book um, starts with a pretty clear call to repentance and the people's repentance. 
Um, then you get into this, they're, they're the eight night visions, okay? Um, Zechariah's not asleep, he's awake, but he's having these visions during the night. And, and they're all pretty wild. There's four horsemen, a surveyor, a, a menorah, um, a basket, four horns, a priest, a flying scroll, and, and then these chariots that are coming around. It's, it's apocalyptic, okay? It's pretty wild. Um, then there's going to be a really clear thing that is going to be about um, the, the restoration of God's people. Then there's going to be another fairly apocalyptic and future-looking section where the future Messiah is going to come, and he is going to come as a shepherd and be rejected. Then he's going to come as a king and be accepted. That's how this thing develops. I've got a chart out of the Connection Center along with some of the other resources that are there. Here's how I would summarize the whole message. Zechariah, speaking the word of the Lord of hosts, by the way, he, he's called 53 times Yahweh Sabaoth, and that's going to be translated Lord of Armies, Lord of Hosts, uh, Lord Almighty, something like that. Yahweh Sabaoth is, is Lord of the heavenly host of armies. It's this powerful resources he's got um, at, at, his, uh, at his resource. It's used 53 times in the book, emphasizing his majestic sovereign authority and the power of the Lord. Um, so Zechariah presented in apocalyptic form the promise that in spite of the nation's lowly position and spiritual insensitivity, a messianic deliverer, the Lord, will appear in history, ultimately bringing eschatological judgment on the enemies of the Lord and blessing on his faithful remnant in order to encourage the people to finish the temple and complete the spiritual renewal in the midst of these difficult circumstances. They did have a, sp a specific task. There were things they were supposed to do, finish the temple. But in the middle of that, he also calls them to be holy, it's like what we have on the wall behind me on the back of this building. It's the roots of being, be who God told you to be, be his people, be a light, be holy, and then do what he's told you to do. For them, build a building. For us, make disciples of all nations. Um, because we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, we should be making disciples and being witnesses um, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So he starts off with this charge. It's pretty straightforward at the beginning. <clears throat> Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. He looks back in history. Apocalyptic does that. It looks back in history and says, don't be like those guys. They failed. They didn't respond to all the preaching the people are going to respond. Then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. We were taken away in captivity and we deserved it because we weren't following him. We weren't being the light to the world that he wanted us to be. We started to look like the world rather than look like the witnesses and the kingdom of priests that we are supposed to be. So at the very beginning of the book, he says, don't be like that generation. They said, yeah, we've done exactly what you said um, we did, and, and you punished us for it. Then he's going to jump into these night visions. Um, one of the things in apocalyptic is just the structure. And throughout this, I'm going to just every now and then throw one of these chiastic um, arrangements up there. It's a very poetic but very clear um, arrangement in chapter 1 through chapter 6 that, that shows the parallels between all of these visions. Um, I'm not going to go into all the details, but it, it makes it very um, enlightening and exciting if you put it all together. 
Here's what he says. Um, First of all, there's this appeal to a lot of the nations. Many nations will be joined with the Lord at that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. It's not just about you Jews. Um, One of the troubling uh, books for the Jewish people is Zechariah because it has verses like this. Lots of nations, not just the Jewish people. God's plan is to make disciples of all the nations. Okay, I'm going to give you one of the eight visions. I'm going to give you the woman in the basket, okay? This one's bizarre. I asked Dawn if she would get up here in a basket. She said no. (laughs) Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, look and see what is appearing. I asked, what is it? He replied, it's a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Really? It's a basket. Um, it's, It's sometimes presented as the measure that's in there, an ephah, okay? But it's a basket. Then the cover of, the, of, the, uh, of lead was raised. It's a basket with a lead lid. And there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back in the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it. That's bizarre. That's apocalyptic. What in the world is that? And, and the angel goes, hey, do you know what this is? And he's like, I got no idea. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and the earth. Okay. You got a woman pushed back in a basket. There's a lead cover on the top. And now we got two women with wings like storks, and they're flying away with this thing. Luckily, there's an interpretation. (laughs) Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, to the country of Babylon to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will sit there in its place. Well, this is the Babylonian captivity, okay? This is the sinfulness of the people of God, the nation of Israel. They're, they're, they're putting in, put in captivity. They're taken to Babylon for a while, and they're going to go there, okay? It's bizarre, but don't get too wigged out about the bizarrity. It's pretty clear. People are wicked. They're putting in captivity, and they're going to be there for a while. Well, it, doesn't stop there it gets weirder too Um, but here's one of the ones that's a little bit more clear the unification of priest and king in Christ take the silver and the gold he gets somebody to bring some silver and gold take the silver and gold set it on the head of the high priest Joshua son of Jezadak tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says here is the man whose name is the branch and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord they're put a king on a priest that you couldn't do that a king wasn't supposed to be a priest You get in trouble if you do that. But what this book is saying is kingdom, king and priests are going to be united. And he's going to be the branch. And we find out in the New Testament, Jesus is this branch. He's the one who branches out from the nation of Israel, but he branches out to do something very different. The kingdom, the the priests and the kings are united in this story. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. So this branch who's going to come, who unites kingdom and priest, he's going to build the temple that's the ultimate temple. Yes, there was a tabernacle, there was Solomon's temple, there was Zerubbabel's temple, but there's going to be another temple, and this king is going to build that temple. And he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two, harmony between kingdom, king, and priest. Um, do you see how it's, it's looking forward, and it's saying to, to them, 
What's happened now isn't the ultimate thing. Something more is going to happen in the future. The crown will be given to Hadai, these guys, and they're going to put it in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. So now you're going to get people from all over the world who are going to be regathered. You will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you delight, diligently obey the Lord your God. This is going to happen, and you can be a part of it when you obey. Then there's going to be this whole scene of the restoration of the righteous remnant. What he's going to do is he's going to regather Israel. He's going to judge their enemies and he's going to bless them so they can be a blessing to others. What he starts off with is this condemnation of their ritualism. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it for me that you really fasted or were you just going through the motions? And when you were eating and drinking, were you just feasting for yourselves? Were you celebrating the feast as a celebration of what I've done? Or were you just doing it for yourselves? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigners or or the poor. Do not plot evil against one another. Again, this is so common in the prophets. Don't just go through the motions. And this should have an impact on how you live. You should treat poor, disadvantaged people well. You've been blessed to be a blessing. And the nations are going to be a part of this. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among them and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Many nations coming together to worship. It goes beyond just what God is doing in Israel. There's going to be a huge revival and a lot of people are going to come together. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. I'm going to bless you so that you can actually bless other people, so you can treat them well. We're going to get this other chiastic structure that's going to give us in chapters 9 through 13. um, The coming of Jesus the first time, and he's rejected. The coming of Jesus the second time, and he is received. This is one of the verses quoted in the New Testament. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. This is Zechariah. And when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry day, they quote this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gently, riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes in gently. He's going to come in to redeem. But what you see in Zechariah is he gets rejected at that point. And that's exactly what happened for Jesus. He was rejected. Jesus quotes Zechariah when he quotes this from Zechariah 13, 7. Awake sword against my shepherd, against the, um, the man who is my associate, says the Lord who rules over all. Strike the shepherd that the flock may be scattered. I will turn my hand against the insignificant ones. If you strike the shepherd, and that's what happens, they strike the shepherd to reject him. And it's going to scatter his sheep. When Jesus is standing all alone, he quotes this. Then Jesus said to them, this night you will all fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus was very aware Zechariah is being fulfilled in me. In his first coming is what's happening there. 
one of the things that's happening here, I'm going to show you real quickly. In just a few verses, the horizons get blended between first coming, second coming, and their world. Okay? Zechariah 9, 9, daughter of Jerusalem, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. That's first coming to redeem. The very next two verses, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's his second coming to rule. Then the very next verse, he goes back to their time when he says this, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortresses, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. He says, I'm going to help you guys out, and you're going to have all the resources you need to build the temple. Understand I'm going through here quickly. I feel like I'm watching um, Infinity Wars. You go from one scene to another, and you're popping around planets. I get it. I get it. He does say there's going to be protection and deliverance for Jerusalem. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be attacked again and again and again. Ultimately, as God protects them, ultimately, they're going to be completely destroyed. Then he says, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. It's going to get worse. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will be taken from the city. Jerusalem's going to be attacked in the end. Then the Lord will go out and fight against these nations as he fights on a day of battle. This is still future for us. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Now, if you look at that and you just go, well, that's just fantastic, crazy imagery. Let me show you something that I found out this past week. This is a map of the world's fault lines. I know you can't see it very well. These are the major fault lines in the world. One of the biggest runs right through the middle of Israel. You think that earthquake's going to be real, or is it just symbolic? I think it's probably real. And in Acts, they knew that this was going to take place because while the disciples are looking intently into the sky as Jesus was ascending, Suddenly, two men dressed in uh, white stood with them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken to you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. They're standing on the Mount of Ascension, on the Mount of Olives, because it tells us, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day walk from the, that city. He ascends from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah says he's going to come back from the Mount of Olives. When he ascended, the angel said, he's coming right back here. Then the Lord my God will come, and all his holy ones with him. On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day not known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there'll be light. You know why there'll be light? Because he's the light. When he returns, he will be the light. This is the culmination of all of this. And there'll be cataclysmic change. On that day, living water will flow from Jerusalem, half to the east of the Dead Sea and half to the west of the Mediterranean Sea in summer and winter. It's going to be cataclysmic. If I understand it correctly, the whole area is going to raise up really high because of this earthquake. And then water is going to come. Subterranean waters are going to come out. Um, I think it's really going to happen. And here's the conclusion of history. The Lord will bring over the whole earth on that day. There will be, the Lord will be king over the whole earth on that day. There will be one Lord and his name, the only name. That's the culmination. That's where we're going. 
rock is skipping. He comes the first time to humbly redeem us and is rejected by most people. But the rock keeps skipping and he's going to come back and fulfill all of these promises. And this book is trying to get your attention with a, a crazy presentation of this. But it has a real message to us. So what do we do with all of this? Zechariah presents in dramatic fashion the cosmic battle between good and evil culminating in the victory of God. Many of these images are picked up in the book of Revelation. Zechariah focuses on the future, especially the wonderful time when Messiah will come and gloriously restore his people and all the nations into relationship with him. It's going to be all the nations, every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's why we're trying to make disciples of all the nations. And Zechariah presents a panorama of eschatological events with a focus on the fulfillment through Messiah, ruling over the nation of Israel, similar to Daniel, who focused on the Gentiles. God's in control of the past, present, and the future, and he will triumph in the end. The battle is bigger in scope and intensity than our eyes can see. That's why it's apocalyptic. The battle's bigger than what we see. It's more intense than what we see. And Messiah will bring God's promised plan to a culmination in his second coming. So remember the faithfulness of God in the past. He fulfilled all of these promises literally. He said Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's not a mythical Bethlehem. That's the real Bethlehem. He said he's going to do all these things. He's going to do them. So for us, be faithful to God in the present and retain a solid hope in God's fulfillment of his plans in the future. So here's just one next step. I'm going to ask you, stand up, because I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. But here's our next step. Recognize and rest in the fact that Zechariah's words are true. It's not by might. It's not by power. But by God's spirit, says the Lord Almighty, that all of God's promises will be fulfilled. God's going to do all this whether we're participating or not. If we participate, there's joy, there's excitement, there's blessing. But he's going to do it because it's not by our might, not by our power, but for his glory and in his power. So let's be faithful to him as we await the hope of all of this fulfillment. Father, thank you for this bizarro book. I pray that we would read it with eyes wide open to see the hope and the clear message that it gives. You win, and we should be faithful. Help us to really, really be holy people who represent you well and participate in what you're doing, not just our own stories but participate in your story. And we know that you'll bring this all about, not by might or power, but by your spirit. So may your spirit motivate us to get involved. I pray that in Christ's name, amen.